Last week I spoke to you from John 15 and tried to explain the relationship between that great chapter and Psalm 119. In Psalm 119 we have a description of a heart of holiness, a, an outline really of what it means to walk with Christ and be growing in, in Christ-likeness. And in course, John 15, we have the means that God uses to accomplish that end. Psalm 119 describes the pursuit of holiness. John 15 describes God's working out that process in your life. Psalm 119's goal is to excite our affections for the pursuit of God. And, and in John 15, Jesus teaches how God makes that happen in God's people. In John 15, Jesus calls God the vine dresser or the heavenly gardener. And he is about constantly pruning in the life of a Christian. I explained that last week, how if you're in Christ, you will experience these times of pruning that usually are uncomfortable, but always result in more Christ-likeness. Today, we're going to move on to the next stanza, Psalm 119, verses 41 through 48. This stanza is titled, Wah, which is the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Each of these stanzas is titled after a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and this is no different. So we have the Wah stanzas before us today, and what we're going to notice from this stanza is that behind and underneath our growth and holiness is the love of God. We're going to study this thoroughly for the next few weeks. And as we study this important stanza, we're going to discover the relationship between God's love and our holiness, between God's personal love for me and my interest in following him faithfully. Those two are very connected. So to begin our time together, let me ask you to think about this question. Do you know why God wants you to become like Jesus? Why is it that God wants you like Jesus? Parents, you know the answer to this question. And the answer is the same reason why you want your children to be good citizens. The reason you want your children to grow in character. Why do you want them to do that? Because you love them, right? Yes, it's the same with God and with his children, with you and me. God loves us and wants us to experience all that it means to walk faithfully with him, to be like his son, Christ how much better life will be if we will just be people like Jesus. Not just for you, but for the people that live in your world. So the Wah stanza concentrates on God's love. God's love, of course, is the most wonderful of his attributes. If we were to take a poll, I'm certain that that would be at the top for most of us, the love of God. Because we know without God's love, we would be utterly hopeless. We would have no interest in God himself. We would have no interest in following him, no interest in spiritual growth. And so each of us are thankful for the love of God. The love of God is the thing that we know is the origin of his love for us and saving us. So the reason why there are more hymns and choruses written about the love of God is because of this very fact. It's really important to us. God's love is a good place to begin this stanza. And you might think, well, seems like it would have been a great place to begin the psalm. But interestingly, this is the very first time that the author of Psalm 119 speaks of God's love. And also, in the same verse, introduces God's salvation. 
Those two are introduced to us for the first time here in verse 41. God's love and his salvation. Both of these extremely important subjects appear here together for good reason. God's love and salvation go perfectly together. God can't help but save people because he loves them. He, he loves us and love requires considering the needs of the one loved. If you don't understand that truth, your marriage is in trouble. Right? I think you could vouch for that. Love requires considering the needs of the one loved. And our greatest need as humans is to be saved from our sinful condition. Saved from that thing that separates us from God. Saves us from those things that keep us from walking faithfully and experiencing a life that God has designed us to experience. So how does God love us? There's so many ways. We could talk forever about this. But the primary way is that he loves mankind by sending his only son, Jesus Christ, to seek and save the lost. That's the primary way that God demonstrates his love for us. And I could say his love motivates his saving work. Why did God send Jesus? Because he loves us. For God so loved the world, what did he do? He sent his only son. See, the reason that we spare no expense in saving boys trapped in an underground cave is because we love them, right? The reason that God spares no expense, and I mean no expense, in saving us is because he loves us. If anyone ever needed proof of God's love, it's found in his salvation. It's found in his saving work. It's found in the plan that God ordained before time began to get us to heaven, to get us into relationship and walking with him. The reason that we have our sins forgiven and are given any hope of eternal life is because of God's love. Now, I want you to, to put yourself in the shoes of the people who first heard this stanza. If you were one of those, you would know nothing, at least not very much of, salvation. It would be a disadvantage for you to hear this psalm versus the advantage we have in hearing this psalm. Those in the Old Testament didn't have a clear picture of salvation, or at least how extensively it really was. That, that was because they had no view of the resurrection. The resurrection was foreign to them, unfamiliar to them. They had never heard of it, never seen it. And yet the resurrection is central to what you and I think about when we think about salvation, isn't it? Yes. In, in fact, in Acts 17, when Paul was preaching um, about the resurrection, his listeners mocked him because they were unfamiliar with the resurrection. They didn't know what it meant. They hadn't heard that before. They thought the here and now was all there was. If anything, there might be some spiritual existence in the future. But when we talk about resurrection, we know it's bodily resurrection, right? It's central to our hope of salvation. We know this because of the time and world history in which we live. We live after Jesus' resurrection. It's a matter of historical fact for us. For them in the Old Testament, if anything, it was a matter of a future possibility. And the New Testament writers speak of such things. Romans chapter 6, for example. Paul says, If we have been united with him, that is, with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 14. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? 
But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is also in vain. So without the resurrection, our salvation is meaningless, is what Paul is saying. The book of Revelation ends with this same idea, chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Now, do you share in the first resurrection? If, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you do. If, if Paul is, is being honest with us in Romans 6 where he says, when we share in a death like his, we'll share in a resurrection like his, then this verse that says you will be blessed if you share in the first resurrection, then that is the case. You will be blessed and holy if you share in the first resurrection. And who was the first resurrected one? Jesus, right? And some, someone's going to say, well, what about Lazarus? He was resurrected before Jesus was. Well, was he? What happens after Lazarus's resurrection? He died, right? He's, he's in the grave currently. What happens after Jesus' resurrection? He lives. He currently lives. It's a different resurrection, isn't it? Completely different. This is the resurrection the scriptures speak of. This is the resurrection that gives us hope. It's a resurrection that leaves us alive, not subject to death again. The death of Jesus takes care of our sin problem, no doubt. And how do we know that's true? How do we know that Jesus' death takes care of our sin problem? Romans chapter 1 tells us it's because Jesus was raised from the dead. That's how we can be assured that Jesus' death satisfied God the Father. Jesus was raised from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus secures our forgiveness and our physical resurrection. Our understanding of salvation is indescribable apart from resurrection. Without resurrection, our salvation is not all that great. The Old Testament saints, saints had no such concept of this. Paul writes about it often, though. Romans 5, for example, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All right, so God demonstrates his love for us by sending his son to die. And then a few verses later, Romans 6 happens, and we read this idea of we can be joined with him in his resurrection. So, since we are introducing here a, a new stanza, the Wah stanza, I'm going to give you a general overview of this stanza, which has been my practice. Um, and then I'm going to work, I'm going to go back in the weeks to come and, and work through this particular stanza part by part so that you'll, you'll be able to, I hope, um, identify the important aspects of this stanza, and which, which focuses on the love of God. But you will notice that, that this stanza uh, throughout references God's love. And I'm going to point this out to you hopefully clearly today. Um, but the stanza points out three important results of personally knowing God's love. Let me uh, first explain to you God's love in general, and then I'll return, of course, to the love of God in more detail in the weeks to come. But first of all, look at verse 41, and let's examine God's love. How do you know that God loves you? Well, it says here, let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. My hope is that your assurance of God's love is not based on something 
that you experienced. I hope, I hope that your assurance of God's love is more substantial than a personal experience. I'm not opposed to personal experiences. I'm just not so certain that's the best place to rest your hope of God's love. What if you don't experience something the person sitting next to you has? Do you require a personal experience to verify the love of God in your life? According to this verse, that's not the way to approach it. It's not what the psalmist did, at least. It's not what Peter did. We read of this in 1 Peter chapter 1. But our, our, our experiences are, are, are uncertain and undependable guides. So what should we base our, our assurance of God's love upon? The verse tells us, what is it? What's it say? His promise, right? And where do we find these promises? Here in the word, right? In fact, this particular, these particular words, your promise, is really a, a synonym for the scriptures. Uh, we've talked about this before, that almost every verse in this particular psalm, Psalm 119, refers in some way, shape, or form to the word of God. In this verse, it is the words, your promise. So it's a general reflection or reference to God's word. What do you base the love of God for you upon? The word of God is what the answer would be if you're referring to this verse. The word of God. But I hope what comes to your mind or what's beginning to come into your mind right now is the possibility that there are some specific promises in God's word that assure us of his love, which is why the psalmist used that particular synonym to affirm it. All right, follow me. As early as Genesis 3.15, God promises to send a savior. In his judgment upon Adam and Eve and the serpent, in his judgment, God promises a savior. And then throughout Old Testament history, after he has promised that he will send a savior one day, he begins to drop hints as to the savior's identity. You get to Genesis 12. And we discover that the Savior is actually going to be coming from the family of Abraham. All right? And that's reaffirmed again and again. That is through the family of Abraham that the peoples of the world will be blessed. That's a promise of a Savior coming through Abraham's family. And then, and then we discovered that this, this Savior uh, would also come from the tribe of Judah, which came from the family of Abraham. The tribe of Judah was the royal family. And then within that royal family was the family of David. And we learn in 2 Samuel that the Savior will come from that family, David's family, David's offspring, which is why Jesus is called the son of David. All right, so, so God, in his wisdom, announces a Savior and then begins to slowly give hints as to who he is. By the time we get into the prophets, we learn that the Savior will be born in Bethlehem. And then, not only that he'll be born in a certain place, but the timing of his birth is given in the book of Daniel. Lo and behold, Jesus shows up right on time. In Daniel, I mean in Bethlehem, in the line of David, in the family of Abraham, the royal family of Judah, 
We have a Savior born. But we get more than just promises about a coming Savior in Scripture. We get promises about what He does, how He saves. For example, in Jeremiah 31, God promises to put His law in our hearts and give us a desire to obey, that, that He will actually forgive our sins. In Matthew and Luke's gospel, we read of the introduction of the promised Savior who came to save his people from their sins. Matthew and Luke refer to this saving. John 3.16, which we all know, God promises to save us from eternal death and give us eternal life. In John 17.23, this unbelievable statement that Jesus makes about the Father's love towards us is this, that my Father loves you as much as he loves me. The Father, yes, God the Father loves his people as much as he loves his own son, Jesus Christ. John 17, 23, read it. It is profound. In 1 John 1, 9, we're promised that God will forgive our sins if we'll but confess them. And then in Romans chapter 8, to wrap up this short survey, Romans chapter 8, verses 33 through 39 God promises that nothing will change his feelings towards us. God promises that nothing will separate us from his love. His love results in salvation. And that is the next point. It only, not only is it based on his promises, it results in something profound. Salvation for those who believe. Acts 15.11 says this, But we believe, this is the apostles speaking, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can we agree that grace is a synonym of love? I think we can in New Testament terminology. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, and this will be the second time you've heard it this morning, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, what's his love result in in Ephesians 2? Salvation. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did he do? Because of his love, he made us alive in Christ. That's called salvation, saving, forgiveness of sins, being right with our creator. So God's love is based upon his promises. It results in our salvation. Now let's turn to what I think is the focus of these verses, 41 through 48. Our love for God. Now, I don't say that that's the focus because it's more important. I simply say it's the focus because I think it's the focus. It's critically important that we understand that our love for God is a result of his love for us. It's based upon his love for us. Right? This is what John tells us in 1 John 4:19. We love because he first loved us. So that's critically important to keep clear in your mind. But what's in focus here in these eight verses is our, the results of our love for God. And so my desire and prayer as I've studied this past week for you is to look at your life, look at your interests, look at your priorities and say, do these things match my claims to love God? Okay. Isn't that the point of all doctrine and theology? That it affects how we think and live as Christians? I hope it is for you. So let's look at 
let's look at the effect of our love for God in the Wah stanza. Look at verse 44. I will keep your law continually. Remember, this, this bleeds out of his experience of God's love and salvation. Because of your love, because of your salvation, I, verse 44, will keep your law continually forever and ever. So it results in obedience. Your love for God, God's love for you, results in obedience. And it shouldn't surprise us that this is one of the first effects of coming to know God's love. Should it? Those who claim Christ but resist his authority in their lives, I think, are seriously confused. Why would you say you follow Jesus if you aren't interested in obeying his commands? I would say this. Uh, you aren't following unless you're obeying. Those, those two are the same thing. Coming to know God's love or believing on the Lord Jesus is not about getting a ticket to heaven. It's a holistic embrace of all that God is for us in Christ, starting today. Uh, our, our Christianity isn't about the future. It's about today. You have eternal life, Jesus said. You have it presently, present tense. So it's a holistic view, experience of knowing and living forward and with God. It, it is an acknowledging of God's right and submitting to his rule in every area of our lives and, in, and enjoying the fellowship that comes from a relationship with our creator. If salvation is experienced, it's because God has given the recipient of salvation a new heart and his indwelling presence. That could be a biblical definition of salvation. Having a new heart, the psalm refers to it as an enlarged heart, verse 32, and the indwelling of God himself in your soul, in your spirit. This new heart and indwelling of the divine results in new interests and new priorities. It results in obedience. So when God gives you a new heart at the moment of conversion or regeneration, the result is that new heart starts pumping spiritual blood through your veins and cause you to think and act certain ways that you didn't before you had the heart. This is what Jesus said about it in John 14. If you love me, this will be the result. Obedience. You'll keep my commandments. Now, do you find yourself saying, well, I don't want to obey his commands. They're, they're boring. It, it's no fun. I want some freedom. Is that where you're at? Yeah, you will know if you love Jesus if you're a commandment keeper. Are you a commandment keeper? Obedience is a result of believing. And believing is a result of being born again. Being given a new heart being regenerated. And so believing is an act of obedience. These are really important truths. The sequence is important. And so let me say it again. Obedience is a result of believing. And believing is a result of being born again. This is what the Apostle John said about the matter in 1 John 5.1. Now listen to the way the sequence goes in this verse. 
Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born again. They've already experienced the new birth. They are alive in Christ. Then they believe. The reason that the gospel is attractive to you, the reason that you embrace Christ, is because you've already been born again. Believing in Jesus is simply a result of this new birth. Actually, it's an act of obedience. It's your first act of obedience. Of having a new heart. Now, look again at verse 44. And I want you to take a look at these three words at the end of verse 44. Continually, forever and ever. Um, This isn't just an adding on or a piling on of the author. Um, These are actually all three different Hebrew words. And they all have different meanings, but they all clearly communicate the believer's comprehensive commitment to obedience from three different angles. All right? We could translate this with these three words. Continually, you'll obey. Forever, you'll obey. Those are two different ideas, aren't they? Continually and forever. And there's a third. Completely obey. Continually, forever, and completely. That's the kind of comprehensive obedience that comes with a new heart. Now, some of you are feeling guilty right now, aren't you? Well, obedience for someone who has encountered God's love isn't a matter of convenience. Obedience isn't a matter of agreement or comfort. If your obedience is dependent upon convenience, whether or not this is convenient for me to obey right now, or agreement with the command, or whether or not this makes me comfortable or uncomfortable, then you aren't committed to obedience. So when you say, I'll obey as long as it doesn't interrupt my life, you aren't committed to obedience. In fact, the test of whether you're committed to obedience is if you obey when it's not comfortable, when it's inconvenient. In fact, when you disagree. That's the test of obedience. Anybody can obey when you're in agreement. It doesn't display any kind of miracle in a changed life or heart, new heart. I kind of like it when you guys love me. So why don't you obey? You know, love one another. I like that and I'll love you if it's convenient. How's that sound? It's not too good, is it? Now, let me, let me throw out some hope to you who are feeling hopeless currently about your inconsistent obedience. You may be disobedient in some area of your life, but most likely it's because you're unaware of the command. All right? We'll give you the benefit of the doubt. You haven't been adequately instructed in the things of God pertaining to that particular area, and so you ignorantly disobey. That is possible and legitimate. But here's the thing. Someone with a new heart, when they're exposed to adequate instruction regarding an issue, they, their natural response, their spiritual response, because they have this new heart, is obedience. It's, it's not like the bank robber who robbed a bank once a week, every month, who was converted 
quote unquote, and told his pastor, well, I'll only, I'll only rob two banks next month. I'm going to cut back. No, once you've been instructed that bank robbing is wrong, you stop bank robbing. So the, the, there is a possibility that you can be in sin because of ignorance. There's also a possibility that you are in sin because of battle weariness. Maybe your spiritual struggle over some issue is uh, so intense that at times you're just worn out and you fail. And then you, you run back to the cross and you lay those sins at Jesus' feet and you accept his forgiveness of sin. That is, that is a likely scenario. Or maybe you are involved with some spiritual mischief of some kind or a surprise attack by the enemy. You, something hits you out of, out of the blue and, you know, the lion jumps out of the bush and you're caught. That happens because we're human, right? We have weaknesses and we sin, which is why the altar is so important to the Christian, which is why this, this invitation to come with your sins to the foot of the cross and conf confess them once again is so important to you if you're in love with Jesus, which is why we provide it for you every single Sunday in case perhaps you've neglected it over the week. So the general direction or trajectory of the regenerated soul is obedience. But there is still an ongoing struggle with it, isn't it? Isn't that true for you? I know it is for me. The next result of knowing God's love is seen in verses 42 and 43. So the first is obedience. The second, look at verses 42, 43, and 46. So the, the love of God has been expressed in verse 41 and says, then or since shall I have an answer for him who taunts me? Then I'll have an answer for him who taunts me. Look at the similarity of verse 43. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth. And then verse 46, I will also speak of your testimonies before kings. So what's the second result of the love of God or your love for God? Speaking up saying something. Well, no, uh, Pastor John, my testimony is my life. I just, I just don't, you know, do bad stuff publicly. Well, that's good and all, but let, let's stay in touch with the word here for a second. We have to say something verbally. Speaking up is what this point is. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 Verse 14, the NIV translation says this, for, the, for Christ's love compels us, Paul speaking, compels us to do what? Speak the gospel, is what he was talking about. My love for God, God's love for me, compels me to say something. You ever been compelled to say something on Facebook? Well, if you have the love of Christ in you, you're compelled to speak of him. Acts 4.29, you know, very early in the life of the church, uh, they were getting uh, persecuted for, their, for their, Christ, their, their, their Christianity, for their love for God. Uh, and the church gathered, and in chapter 4, verse 29, they prayed this prayer to God. And now, Lord, 
look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak. Continue to speak your word with all boldness. This is what these three verses in Psalm 119, 42, 43, and 46 are saying. The love of God results in speaking up. Now, when you fall in love with that special someone in your life, uh, you are always quick to tell others about them, aren't you? Why is that? Because you love them. You think highly of them. You parents, when you meet someone new, what's one of the first things you do? You tell them about your excellent children, right? Why? Because you love them. That's why. In the same way, you will speak of Jesus often. You will speak of his word often. Why? Because you love them. You love God. You love his word. And so you'll speak of it often. Verse 46, I will also speak of your testimonies before kings, has been linked by church historians to the famous Martin Luther um, appointment with the Diet of Worms in April of 1521. In that setting, Luther was required to defend his opinions uh, that were opposed to the Catholic Church of his day, um, and he, he, he did so, and of course, um, he defended the scriptures and, and the character of God, and it was a dangerous situation for Luther because before him, others had endured the same type of inquisition and, been, and had been put to death by the church for their stand for Christ and, their, and the scriptures. And so Luther had to be careful on what he said and how he said it. Um, but the inquisitors asked him whether or not he would recant what he taught and believed about the Bible and about God. And this is Luther's famous reply. Now, I want you to pay attention to what he's defending here. All right? And let me just give you a hint. He's not defending Luther. Listen to what he says. Since your most serene majesty and your high mightiness, and I don't think he was being sarcastic. Maybe he was, knowing Luther. But require from me a clear, simple, and precise answer. I will give you one, and it is this. I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the councils because it is clear to me as the day that they have frequently erred and contradicted each other. Unless, therefore, I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by the clearest reasoning, unless I am persuaded by means of the passages I have quoted, speaking of Scripture, and unless they thus render my conscience bound by the Word of God, I cannot and will not retract for, excuse me, for it is unsafe for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me, amen. He was standing before kings and fulfilling Psalm 119, verse 46. Because of the love of God, Luther spoke. It wasn't because of the love of Luther, Luther spoke. The love of God impacted what came out of his mouth whether it was before kings or friends. And here's the issue for us as the rubber meets the road. Very few of us will have to defend God or the scriptures before kings or presidents. But we will 
have to every day before friends and family. And I believe the second is much harder than the first. Most of us would, wouldn't mind standing up before a king and someone we didn't know and giving a defense of God in the scriptures. But to do so before a loved brother or sister or neighbor or co-worker is a different conversation, isn't it? And let me say this, much more important. How shall they believe unless they hear? A love for God and his word goes beyond kings. And it's about speaking with friends and family members. How often do you find yourself talking about Jesus with others in your life? Talking about God's word? Well, I don't don't want to offend them. I I don't want to you know, get them upset with me or ruin our friendship. I mean, after all, how am I going to live for Jesus in front of them if they don't want to talk to me anymore? There we go. The next result of our love for God is this, found in verse 48. Worship. You see it? I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your testimonies. Let me ask you, when you hear the word of God read or preached, what's your response? Is it worship or disdain? Is it worship or ridicule? Is it worship or indifference? Doesn't matter if it's ridicule, disdain, or indifference, they're the opposite of worship. Your response to the Word of God is a barometer of the condition of your soul. If worship doesn't flow from an encounter with God in His Word, then what are we supposed to assume? To say I care less, or to act like I care less, or to doze in and out of consciousness in the presence of God's word when it's being taught or read, what are we supposed to assume? Someone who loves God and his word will be moved to worship when God's word is read, when it's accurately taught or preached. And this is what we see in verse 48, lifting up hands toward God's commands. It's full of meaning, that phrase. And it demonstrates a heart overflowing with an affection for God and his revelation of himself to us. Imagine not having it. Imagine being one of the thousands of people groups who have never had it. Lifting up our hands towards God is a worshipful reverence for God and I think a literal plea for more of Him and more of His Word. I think this physical demonstration of lifting up hands in verse 48 is a picture of a heart impacted by the love of God. His love for you and your love for Him results many times in an external demonstration of that work in your life. 
It's, it's a description of worship, and I believe maybe even an expose of the heart. So don't be fooled into thinking, just because you are here this morning, or because you have prayed some sinner's prayer when you were younger, that your heart is new and regenerate. The, the question you must wrestle with is about your affection, not your history. Does God and his word affect you? Is your hope resting on Jesus? Or is it resting on your own ingenuity or work ethic? Does your heart long for God, long for his word? Or is his word and, and hearing it read or preached something you put up with for the sake of your spouse. This is, this is such a penetrating reality for those of us who come to church every week. God's word always does this, doesn't it, to us. I'm sorry I can't make you feel better But I'd rather you feel bad and do business with God than feel better and end up in hell. Since we believe that God initiates when it comes to our affection for him, and, and we are dependent upon the work of his spirit to make this happen, again, reference to John 15, without me you can do nothing. I want to I want to pray for you right now, this morning, and ask God to do this work in you. Because if it's dependent upon him, why not ask him to do it, right? So let me pray for you right now, then I'll come back and finish the sermon. Oh God, have mercy on us, your people. I ask that, that you would do your work in us, that you would initiate an affection, a passion, a genuine desire for you and your word in our hearts. God, we know this is impossible without you. And so I'm asking um, for the benefit of your people in this room, for the benefit of those who will soon to be your people by way of regeneration, that you would do this in us right now. That you would remove any barriers or uh, any hurdles that, that might be in the way of a, a genuine and full access to the Holy Spirit of God and a relationship with you by way of your Son. God, do this for us. Awake us. Help us to love you more, pursue you more. Pray that your love would have these kinds of effects on us today, here. Amen. Charles Bridges, he wrote this, Professor, or those of you who claim to be in Christ, are you professing Jesus? Well, listen up, awake, or beg of the Lord to awaken you. For if your cold sleeping heart is content with the prospect of heaven hereafter, without seeking for a present foretaste of its joy, it may be a very questionable matter whether heaven will ever be yours. 
If you're sitting here as a, as a so-called Christian thinking, well, one day I'll get serious. You know, maybe, when I, maybe, maybe it's when I see Jesus face to face. Then I'll really and I'll understand it and I'll, I'll start living then for him. Bridges runs a penetrating sentence at us, doesn't he? Maybe it's possible you won't be there. <laughs> if you have no interest in pursuing him now, what makes you think that dying will change that? What a challenge to our souls we have here in front of us. Does God's love result in obedience, speaking up, and worship in your life? If not, what better time now than to repent? What a, what a better response than that, simply to run to Christ who is a friend of sinners and pour this out at his feet and claim his promises for you. Maybe the song that we're about to sing can be your prayer. I, I hope that it will be. Let's sing this together. <laughs>